We're in Matthew tonight as we're working our way through Matthew 24. We've been looking at kingdom parables. We've been looking into some of the signs of the last days. And Jesus' disciples asked them, what will be the signs of your coming? And so Jesus takes the time to intricately answer that question. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, tonight we're going to look at one verse. Um, I had intentions of doing multiple verses, but as I begin to just unpack this and and let the Holy Spirit uh, show us what's in there. We're only going to get through that one verse tonight. So it's Matthew 24, verse 9. And uh, I'll start in verse 7 just for context's sake to see where we've come from. Father, we thank you tonight for the scripture. We thank you tonight that we can come into your house in the middle of the week and worship you, Lord God. Father, we have liberty and freedom, and we thank you for that. And we can come into this place, Lord. We're free. We live in a free country where we can still worship God without being censored, without being shut down. And so we're thankful for that tonight. And so, Father, open the word up to us, Lord, and fill us with your truth so that we can be lights that shine in the darkness, Lord, and that we can preach the gospel with boldness and see lives transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, Lord God. Let it begin with a spark from your word tonight in each of us, I prayed in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 24, Jesus answering the question, what will be the signs of my coming? He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not the end yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there will be famines, earthquakes, pestilences. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Let's just stop there, close our eyes, and listen to verse 9 again. It's sobering. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Jesus is answering the question here of what will be the signs of his coming, and he listed several things that we've covered already there, uh, and those signs that we covered already are the signs that will be displayed in creation. Notice we talked about pestilences and earthquakes and you know all of these things that shake the earth. Those signs were displayed in creation. The signs that we're looking at here in verses 9 through 14, as we, we're going to cover 9 tonight by the grace of God, but if you go throughout 14, you're going to see these signs uh, are not signs in creation. They're not, you know, just, uh, you know, crazy people claiming they're Jesus and they're the second coming. They're not earthquakes. They're not famines. They're not pestilences. But these are signs that are displayed in the climate of the church and how the church interacts with the world. How many know there are two kingdoms at work in the earth? There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. And they clash with each other. If you're not in the kingdom of God, you're in the kingdom of darkness. Oh, but I'm a nice person. Nice people need Jesus and they need to be saved. And once we're saved, we're part of the family of God. We're part of the kingdom of God. You know, people say these things and they're theologically incorrect. Well, we're all God's children. No, we're not God's children. 
We're all created in God's image. But what makes you a child of God is when you accept Jesus and you're born again and you become part of the family of God. Come on. Do we have any children of God in here tonight? I'm not a child of God because I'm a nice person, because I do good deeds, because, you know, I say please and thank you, because I use good grammar and I don't say bad words. No, I'm a child of God because I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, amen? So we're all made in God's image, but we're not all children of God. What makes us children of God is that we are in Christ. And so we've seen these signs, they're external signs, the rumblings, the shakings in the earth, the spiritual climate, a little bit with the you know, the false messiahs there, but there's a shift that takes place in these next verses. And we're going to see that, you know, it, it deals with man's interaction with the church and even the church's, uh, you know, interaction with itself. I, I would love to jump ahead and get into some of these things, but I'm just going to have to wait because all we're going to look at is verse nine tonight. So there always been deep divisions between the secular and the sacred. Say Amen. There have always been deep divisions between the secular and the sacred. In fact, if we take what's sacred and we secularize it, we have perverted it, and it's no longer sacred. You can't take the gospel and mix it with humanism or psychology or you know some kind of false theology and have it still be the gospel. So this division between the secular and the sacred has to be there, otherwise the sacred is not sacred anymore. So the point I'm making here is there's always been a separation between the world and the church. Now in churches that are worldly, you don't see that so much. But Jesus doesn't consider churches that are apostate to be the church at all. The church holds fast to the truth, to the scripture, holds fast to the gospel, but that separation between secular and sacred, between the, the world and the church has to be there. It's always been there. At times, the world system has had an uneasy tolerance of true Christianity, but it's never really been okay with it. Did you hear what I said? Sometimes the world will tolerate the church, Tom. Sometimes the world will tolerate the gospel, especially if it's, you know, if you think about times in the past where more people were Christians, more people were biblically literate, more people followed the Judeo-Christian ethics. We didn't get such pushback from the world because Christianity was popular. Christianity was dominant. Christianity was in vogue. You didn't get people in our grandparents' generation, you know, parading their immorality around brazenly. Hello, Wednesday night. If you did some of that stuff, even if you weren't a Christian, you, it was embarrassing. Now the gloves are off and secular society is pushy and pervasive and the church has kind of been marginalized and pushed in the corner as far as the world is concerned. And so we, we see that division between the secular and the sacred and there's, there's a bigger rub there. Uh, at times the world tolerated the church, but not so much anymore. Notice a compromised church that waters down the gospel, that tolerates sin, that justifies immorality, will find acceptance in the world. And there are churches out there doing that, and they've got secular people applauding them. Oh, aren't they terrific? 
Because when the gospel is watered down and disarmed, it's no longer a threat. And so everything that has to do with religion and spirituality is acceptable to the world. So a church that compromised will be accepted by the world. If you study the book of Revelation, Jesus has a lot of rebukes for the church because they've tolerated worldliness. And some of those church systems that he addresses are very popular in the secular realm. But the churches that hold fast to the gospel and preach the truth and don't water down the scripture and live by the commandments of God, they are at odds with the world. So a compromised church will find some acceptance. The church that does not compromise even one little bit will be attacked, marginalized, and hated by the world every time. And that's what is being expressed here. Now, you say, you know, shouldn't we just kind of, you know, tone it down or, you know, try to give in to get along? Or shouldn't we just stop being so abrasive so that maybe they'll like us and they'll come in and they get saved? Well, that's just not the way it works. We've tried that. We've tried the seeker-friendly model, and all it did was water down the church to the point where it becomes a social club, and there's no room for the Spirit of God to bring conviction because everything's all right and everything's okay, and all roads lead to God. And there's no conviction, and there's no altar call, and there's nobody getting saved. And so what we've got is a Christian club. And God is not for that. So compromise will find acceptance. The church that compromises will find acceptance among the world, but not acceptance in the eyes of Jesus, if you look at Revelation. Now, you say, well, why does it have to be that way? Jesus and John answer the question perfectly for us. John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus speaking here. Doesn't this sound happy, clappy, goosebumpy? Jesus talking about, hey, you guys, the world hates you. Stand in line, hated me first, right? He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now listen to John's explanation in John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. Jesus and John answered the question why an uncompromised church can't get along with the world. Because we've repented of sin and the world is in sin. Because we have despised sin and the bondage of it, and, and the world loves it and revels in it. So there's this clash there that just can't go away. And, and we've got to understand there is going to be tension between us and the world. At some point when we get through some of these other verses, we're going to see that there's tension between, within the church. And everywhere that worldliness has crept into the church, that type of church will hate the church that's, that holds fast to the gospel. You've already seen it. You've already seen it expressed in the nations. Even during COVID, you had churches that were, you know, full on board where they're where they going to do whatever the government says. And some churches are going, we're going to follow God. And, the, and then there's a clash between churches. There's church people. Well, you know, I, I'm not going here and you're not going there. And your mask is not on right. And you need to have two masks. And, uh, you know, and all of a sudden the church is fighting itself. 
That's not an anomaly. That's not an accident. That's a sign of what's to come. So Jesus and John clear up why it is. Now we pick up in verse 9 with the sixth sign of his coming. Then they, say they, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I just laid the groundwork for why that's going to happen, but here's Jesus saying it, and it's a sign of his coming. They'll deliver you up to tribulation. They will uh, kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, the first thing I want to do as we look at verse 9 is this. Let's find out who the they is. Did you hear what I said? Then they. Who's they? Do you ever hear people talk about they? You know, you see it in arguments and debates. Maybe you see it in a clash in the, uh, on the news shows, and you have pundits, and they're arguing back and forth, and they, they, they. And they'll, they'll say things like, you know, they said this, or they did that, or they believe this, or they did X, Y, and Z. And anytime I'm in a debate, I want to know who the they is. Some of you don't get it. Because usually, a lot of times, Tom, the they is just fictional. It's a fabrication. It's a straw man argument. It's, it's, it's what we, you know, call in debate rhetoric. It's just, you know, it's just something somebody made up, and, and, and they built a, a point off of a fictional group of they. So who's the they here? People talk about they all the time. Now, when it says this they is going to do some pretty serious things, deliver you to tribulation, that doesn't sound fun, kill you, that, that's rude. My mother taught me that that's rude. You don't kill people. It's, it's not nice. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So it's important that we understand who the they is in Matthew 24, 9. The they are those who are involved in the power structure of this world's system. They are the rulers of the kingdom of darkness in the earth. They are also connected to the principalities that rule those, those dominions. Listen, this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual structure. But the power structure of the world system will be what compromises the they. The world's system will deliver us to tribulation. The world's system will kill us. The world's system will hate us, every part of it. I know this is not fun, but it's what we need to be prepared for. We need to understand, and it's what is being taught to us in Matthew 24 here. So understanding who the they is, the they is the world system. Now let's dig into that a little bit because I want you to understand the world system and the system we live in. It's real awkward and quiet when I take a drink. Can you guys clap or something? That was much less awkward. I'm afraid you're going to hear me swallow like... So we're talking about the world system here. And the world system, I want you to think about it like a a, a tree. The branches of the world system are, are many. They're all different branches of the world system. You have cultural branches. How many know the culture of the world is opposed to the church? Anybody, anybody been on social media? Do you notice how much they love Christian ideology on social media? Just quote a scripture. 
I mean, you can't even say God loves you without getting into a debate or getting insulted or getting, you know, I mean, the culture is just so diametrically opposed to the church. And you say, why is that? Because it's part of the world system. It's a branch of the world system. How about governments? Governments are, are not, you know, the governments of the world are what are going to comprise the, the system, the beast system in the book of Revelation. When it talks about the horns and this and the rulers and all, these are governmental structures, nations, uh, conglomeration of European nations getting together and forming the Antichrist government. You know, government is a necessary evil. But listen, there is no perfect government. There is no godly government. The only governance that will ever be perfect is when Jesus comes to rule and reign on the earth. And the government, what did the messianic prophecy say about Jesus? That the government will sit on his shoulders. That's the only perfect government. There's no perfect government. Government is within the world system. It oppresses people. It taxes people to death. It regulates people. It steals people's liberty. It, it, it does all kinds of things. We see governments right now on the earth that are incarcerating uh, Christians and, and, and killing people groups. Governments are part of the power structure of the world system. So you have culture, you have governments, there's economic systems. This is why in the last days there'll be a one world government and a one world currency and a one world economic system. Why? Because the, the, the satanic uh, structure that's going to take its place under the Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet is going to want to control all those things because they're branches of the world system. So you have culture, you have government, you have economics, and there are religious systems that persecute the true church. True church of Jesus Christ has always been persecuted, and it's been persecuted by other religious systems. The blood of the saints, the martyrs, we're going to talk about that a little bit, you know, during these times where, you know, Groups fought holy wars against each other, and you, you had times where the church was, uh, you know, executing certain people in the, uh, and incarcerating people and making them uh, agree with a document of faith or, you know, we'll burn you at the stake. You realize this stuff happened in the name of God by churches. The Reformation was a time where people stood up against, you know, worldly church systems, and they were martyred for their stance. Some of them burned, some of them drawn and quartered, some of them beheaded. So <coughs> culture, governments, economics, religion, all these are branches, they're arms of the, you know, this worldly power structure. But I want you to know something. All the branches are rooted to a single tree and a single root system, and what's at the root of the world system is Satan himself. You say, no, 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 it's all good, it's all God, it's happy, clappy, the birds are chirping in the air, God's in control. Listen, the, the earth is under sin right now. And because man fell and chose sin, this, the kingdom of darkness has dominion in the earth. God's still God and he's still above all of this, but he will eventually redeem the earth from the enemy when he destroys sin completely, amen. <laughs> but right now... The enemy, Satan himself, is involved in the power structure of the world, the kingdom of darkness. Now, let's look at a couple scriptures that help us to understand this, because I don't want to just say stuff and not back it up in scripture. I, I want you to know why this is true. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in in whose case, listen, the God of this world, get that phrase, who's the God of this world? In this case, the God of the world has blinded their minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the scripture is saying the God of this world will blind the eyes of the people who are in the world system so that they can't see Jesus and get saved. The God of this world is Satan. The God of this world is the the power structure of the kingdom of darkness. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. And you who were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of of the power of the air, there's another name for him, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the God of this world is Satan. How did he get here? He fell from heaven, and he's called the prince of the power of the air. He was kicked out of heaven. He rules in the atmospheric realm of the earth, and he afflicts mankind because he does it to hurt God. God loves people, and Satan hates people. God sent Jesus to redeem all of us sinners and Satan blinds the eyes of every sinner so that they'll miss the free gift of salvation and spend eternity in hell with him and his demons. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the the ungodly, unholy system of this world. Now, Satan is at war with the true church of Jesus Christ. How many people know that? Satan is at war with the true church, not religion, not spiritualism, not philosophy or even theology. He's at war with the true church. How many remember before you became Christians, maybe you were in a church, but you weren't born again. Maybe you were in a religious system that was devoid of God. But remember how before you came to Jesus, the enemy never bothered you? Anybody? Man, you're doing all kinds of bad stuff, and everything was pretty much going good for you. And you're watching the Christians having problems down the street, the Christians in foreclosure, the Christians in trouble. So this translation from one kingdom to the next, uh, you know, we come out of the world system, and we come into the kingdom of God, and all of a sudden where we had no attack, no resistance, no harassment from the enemy, now we've got a target on everything in our lives. And he comes at us. Why? Because we came out of the kingdom of darkness into the light. Now we're an adversary of his, an enemy of his. And so Satan is at war with the church, and he's at war with Christians who love Jesus. That's why the culture, the government, the economic system, and the apostate church will all oppose and attack every true believer that refuses to fall in line with the wicked agenda of this world. This world is wicked. It's lost. It needs salvation. We know that because we were wicked and lost and needed salvation. And then God opened our eyes and we saw it and we said, I want Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus comes in and translates us from darkness to light. So we're under the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're, We're under Jesus and his kingdom. We're not under the prince of the power of the air anymore. Uh, We're out of the world system, so now we're at odds with the world system. 
Satan's at war with the church. He's at war with every true believer. He's at war with you and I. You and I have to be warriors. We have to put on the armor of God. We have to have our wits about us, our eyes open to spiritual things, amen? The time is too late for us to be fat, dumb, and happy, just kind of stumbling our way through life. Amen. Time to wake up and see. And that's why we're talking about kingdoms. That's why we're looking at kingdom parables. That's why we're talking about his coming and the signs of his coming. Now, the enemy's at war with the church and all the branches of his kingdom that are rooted to him himself will attack the church. That's why the culture attacks the church. That's why the government wants to persecute the church. That's why, you know, the economic system wants to keep the Christian down. That's why the apostate religious systems will try to marginalize the true church of Jesus Christ. Starting to make sense? So we're in a spiritual battle, and there's a specific spirit that is driving the world's opposition and hatred of everything that's spiritually authentic in you and I. And I want to identify that spirit that's behind it. 1 John 4, 2 through 4, names the spirit that we are at odds with. Listen to this. This you know, this you know the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. An encouraging scripture, it shows the spiritual conflict we're in. It shows that we're victors in Christ Jesus because we have the spirit of God in us. But listen, it also names the spirit that is at odds with the church. It is the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist doesn't just, you know, it attacks everything that's spiritually authentic. That's why the spirit of Antichrist hates the Jews because the Jews are from God and salvation is of the Jews and Jesus was and is a Jewish rabbi who died to graft the Gentiles into the kingdom. So that spirit of Antichrist hates the Jews and it expresses itself in anti-Semitism and we saw it blossom in World War II as Adolf Hitler became an embodiment of the Antichrist spirit and purposed to annihilate the Jews. I wanted to get more amens on that. But the Antichrist spirit also persecuted the church. Why? Because obviously the true church of Jesus Christ is spiritually authentic. So the spirit is in the earth. It is the spirit of Antichrist. It's already here. It's already in operation. The spirit of Antichrist will usher in the Antichrist himself. And all of this is working through the world system. So understand the power structure here that I, that I talked about. You know, this power structure had branches. They're economic. They're cultural. They're religious. They're, they're they're, they're all of these things, uh, but they, they also are, are rooted to Satan, but they're driven by the spirit of Antichrist. So when you see these terms in Scripture, understand what they mean and start to piece the whole puzzle together so you can get a clear picture of it. Now, it's a spiritual battle we're in. We're fighting against the darkness. The spirit of Antichrist is what motivates uh, those who are part of the enemy's kingdom to oppose the church. Uh, it says... You know, here that 
we overcome because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, and that's good news and something for us to hold on to, amen? Remember when we talk about all this stuff, don't get scared, don't get intimidated, realize that it's true, Jesus is in us, the Holy Spirit is in us, we're more than conquerors, amen? We're not appointed to wrath, God's not going to destroy his bride, he's going to keep us. So the they is the world, and the world is controlled by Satan, and the world is driven by the spirit of Antichrist. And if you don't remember anything else from what we learned tonight, remember that. I'll say it one more time. The they who is persecuting the church is the world, and the world is controlled by Satan, and the world is driven by the spirit of Antichrist. So what the they, the wicked, intend to do to the righteous is alarming, and we're not to be fearful, and we're not to be scared, because greater is he who is in us. But Jesus wanted us and his disciples and all future generations of Christians to be fully aware what the world has in its heart towards us. It says they. We've defined who they is. And they represent the power structure. We learned that it's the world. It's controlled by Satan. It's driven by the spirit of Antichrist. What does the they want to do? They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Oh, happy day. Most people, if you've, most of us, if we found out there was people actively seeking to kill us, would be a little bit unhinged about that. Anybody? Anybody in the witness protection program? Don't raise your hand. They'll have to relocate you. But, you know, the they has a, an intention towards us to deliver us up into tribulation and to kill us. Now, what does that mean to deliver you up to tribulation? Uh, it means the world is going to accuse, harass, discredit, try to cancel, and financially ruin the people of God at an ever-increasing pace. Did you hear that? Do you see that happening all around us? They're trying to marginalize us, trying to cancel us, trying to destroy us, trying to, you know, financially pull us apart, trying to get us to fight against each other. Uh, why, why is that happening? The spirit of Antichrist is driving it. It's the world system using all of its branches against the true church of Jesus Christ. Will they be successful? No. Will they uh, harass? Will they tear down? Will they pick at the leaves? Yes. The, the enemy is always going to try and harass us. He's never going to leave us alone. You can't say, oh, will you just leave me alone, devil? He won't. The only thing we could do is run to Jesus and drive every bit of darkness out of us so he has no foothold in us. Listen, the reason that the enemy can harass some of us and put sickness on us and destroy our finances and attack our children is because there's just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of darkness, a little bit of compromise in us that we haven't repented of and rooted out. Now, I'm not saying all the time. Sometimes, you know, we do everything we're supposed to do and the enemy comes at us hard. But we've got to take a look at here first. We can't just always assume, well, ah, there's nothing wrong with me. There's usually, you know, it, Tony, it's usually me. Can I, just, can I just be honest? My wife is nodding on the first row. Yes, it's usually you. But we've got to take a look in there. So we, if there's compromise, if there's sin, if we're doing things we know we shouldn't, we've got to repent of that and stop. You know, we should live in such a way that the enemy has no foothold, no right, no access to us. 
So here's this attack, and they're going to deliver us into tribulation. Uh, what does that mean? That means we're going to be accused. We're going to be harassed. We're going to be discredited, canceled. Uh, the world system wants to ruin us, wants to take us out, wants to you know, knock us out of the fight so that we have no platform to speak the gospel and to shine the light in the darkness. You know, a weak, discredited, disjointed, immoral church has no foundation to preach the gospel to a lost world. And while the enemy can't kill us and he can't steal our salvation and he can't get Jesus to quit on us, he can sure marginalize us to the point where we become ineffective. And sadly, much of the church has become ineffective. We're not spiritually attractive. We don't have a powerful witness. We don't have boldness. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. Is that the way the church looks right now? Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. So deliver us up to tribulation. We see uh, light persecution at this time, especially in the West here. Our persecution is all, you know, words, and they come at us and they harass us. Some of our brothers and sisters in different places around the world see persecution at a much more accelerated rate. You know, if you're a Christian in the Middle East, if you're a Christian in China, if you're a Christian in a Muslim-majority nation, if you're a Christian in Korea, come on, church in the West, fat and comfortable. We don't want to think about that. No, move on, Pastor Rick, move on. We don't want to think about that. We might have to pray. We might have to send money. We might have to do something. So the last part here, he says you're going to be delivered to tribulation. We're understanding that. We've got light persecution now. It could get worse. Uh, but the second half of verse 9 says, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So this idea of being <coughs> killed for our faith, again, in the West is pretty, you know, has anyone known anyone who has been killed for their faith? Now, if we were in a different country, hands would go up all over the place. So this idea of being killed for our faith is a little bit foreign to us. But Christian martyrdom, and that's what we're talking about here, Christians being martyred, that's killed for their faith, killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. That has been happening since the birth of the church. It happened even before the establishment of the church. I'm going to show you that. Most of us don't really entertain the possibility of martyrdom happening to us here in our safe little bubble of freedom and liberty, even though it's rapidly eroding. Uh, understand as our liberty and our freedoms erode, the possibility of persecution becomes greater and the possibility of martyrdom becomes greater. You and I should stand up for our liberties. It's not ungodly to stand up for liberty and righteousness and holiness. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen. Amen. So we don't entertain the possibility of martyrdom, but it's been happening since the church started. Some Bible teachers 
trace martyrdom all the way back to even really before the church started. Do you remember in Acts 2, 16 through 18, when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He sent out a, an order to murder all the firstborn male, all the male children between the ages of zero and two years old in that gap. And what did he do? He murdered all those children. Why? To, so if the Messiah was among them, he would knock the Messiah out and he would be able to rule and someone wouldn't usurp his authority. Herod was an evil guy. I, I don't think Herod's up in heaven, you know, hanging out with the uh, apostles right now. So he, he, he murders all these children. And what was that? That was martyrdom. Those babies died because, you know, they died kind of as a first fruits offering to protect the Savior, to protect Jesus. And, you know, it was, it was the enemy's first lashing out at the Messiah and the New Testament church. And all these children are murdered and uh, you know, many people see that as the first act of martyrdom in the New Testament church. Uh, of course, we have John the Baptist, who was martyred. He was a, a forerunner there. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's getting the people ready for Jesus. And, you know, they imprison him, and they wind up beheading him, and he gives his life for his faith. How about Stephen? A lot of people consider Stephen the first martyr. He was stoned in the book of Acts, uh, verse 7, verses, uh, I mean, Acts 7, 54 through 60, you can read about it. Stephen was stoned. The heavens opened up to him, and, and they killed him, and he was received into heaven. But some see Stephen as the first martyr of the church. So the church is just getting started here. And what? Some religious people get in an argument with Stephen, and, and he won't budge because he knows the truth, and he won't bow to their religion, and so they kill him. He's a person giving his life for his faith, all the disciples, I've said this many times, all the disciples except for Judas who hung himself and John who, you know, died of natural causes after he got the book of Revelation, only those two, the rest of them were all martyred and they were all killed in, you know, not pleasant ways. Shot through with arrows, speared, skinned alive. I forget who, I think it was Philip, skinned alive in India. Just something, you know, crazy stuff. Uh, cr crucified upside down, be beheaded. You know, the Apostle Paul, uh, a, a man of God who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, they take his head off. Wow. So martyrdom has always been a part of the church. The, you know, whether it was the disciples, the Apostle Paul, John the Baptist, whether it was Stephen, those babies that were murdered, uh, you know, because Jesus was coming. Uh, the early church had many martyrs. You had Polycarp of Smyrna. There's so many. I begin to look and study through these. There's so many of them that you can't even list them. Uh, there was martyrs during the early church. They were killed. The Romans, you know, used them as torches to light up the Colosseum. They fed them to wild animals in the, in the, in, for sport because they were Christians and they wouldn't recant their faith. How about during the Reformation? You know, the church had been pulled into the dark ages. The truth of Scripture had been lost, and the institutional church took charge of Christianity, and someone had to come and, you know, say, you guys aren't following the Bible anymore, and nail 99 edicts to the door of the church and say, this is where you've gone off course. You know, and they martyred these people. They killed them for standing against the holy Roman Catholic Church. 
that had become apostate to the word of God. So during the Reformation, you had people martyred. A guy named William Tyndale was martyred. You know what? What evil William Tyndale did, uh, he, I, th- I think he made the printing press so that the scripture could be printed in our, in our language so we could read it. And the church people said, oh, no, you don't. You can't read that. We'll tell you what it means. And he said, oh, no, I don't think so. We're going to print it up. And they killed him for it. So the fact that we have a Bible in our hand to read in a language that we can understand that's not taken away from us and hidden away and, 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 and given out to us, you know, by a church, we can thank a person who gave his life as a martyr to make that happen. There are so many missionary martyrs, Tom Baker, James Gordon, Jim Elliott, a a man who went to a tribe and, 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 you know, preached to them and they speared him and killed him and his wife went back to live among the tribe and evangelized them and they got saved. There's so many Christian missionary martyrs out there, too many to list. And so I'm just giving you a kind of brief history here of the fact that martyrdom has been part of the church experience since the beginning. There's a book that most everyone who goes to Bible school preparing for the ministry studies, Fox's Book of the Martyrs. It was a book that told all the stories and, uh, throughout the centuries and the ages of the martyrs of the Christian church. Fox's Book of Martyrs has recently been updated. Why? Because martyrdom is still going on. So they updated it, and it now includes all those murdered for their faith by ISIS, by the Taliban, by Middle Eastern theocracies, uh, Korea, China, again, these nations that persecute the church. They've actually had to update the book because there's so much current information. It's an injustice to talk about martyrdom without including those who are actively being martyred in our lifetime. So understand martyrdom is part of the church. It may be a foreign idea to us in the West. I could see by the glazed look in your eyes that you're like, we don't get it. And I hope that it doesn't come here, but part of me knows that in some ways the persecution is coming here, especially as we get more and more lazy about our rights and our liberties that are being eroded. So uh, we're talking about martyrdom. I want to just bring up one interesting point about martyrdom. It's an interesting thing to note. The final destination of those believers who are martyred for their faith, you think, Jesus, why do you just let them kill your children? Why don't you do something? Listen, I'm going to read you a scripture that's going to make it easy to understand, but God knew that the church would be hated. That's why the text says they're going to deliver you to tribulation. They're going to kill you. Everybody's going to hate you because of me. Jesus knew. In fact, he not only knew that this was going to happen, he knew everyone who would give their life for the gospel. Everyone. He knows every single person who will give their life as a martyr for the faith. Listen to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. It tells us the final destination of those who are martyred, and it tells us that God knows the name of every single one of them. Listen to this. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them who were slain for the word of God and for their testimony, which they held. So under the altar of God, there are souls under the altar, and there are all those people who gave their life for what? Their testimony, the testimony that they held, and for the word of God. So they died for the faith, and they're all in one spot under the throne of God in the throne room of heaven. Are you getting this? 
So check this out. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? White robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Wow. God knows everyone who is slated to give their life for the kingdom of God. And he's not going to do a thing to avenge them until their number is fulfilled. Are you getting this? He cares. He's very aware. And the truth is, it would be a great honor to give our lives for the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' final warning in verse 9, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In the last days, to be a Christian who keeps the faith will come at an ever-increasingly higher cost. Not many in our generation have the stomach to be hated. Think about that for a second. Most people can't take it if a few people on social media don't like their post. Yet God asks us to stay faithful and true to the gospel and to the kingdom of God to the point where if everybody hates us, we're still going to serve God with gladness, not with bitterness, not with complaining, but, you know, he, he's telling us that this is a possibility, and so we should prepare ourselves to be at odds with the world, to be misunderstood, to be hated, and we need to come to the place where we would rather be a fool in the eyes of men than in the eyes of God, where we'd rather be hated by the entire world. I know some days it feels like that, everybody hates me. Maybe you were a kid used to say that, nobody likes me. And your parents are thinking, we don't like you either. What's wrong with you? But you know what? If it came to that place where the whole world was against us, do we love Jesus enough to stay faithful to him, even if it costs us our lives? And I hope the answer in every one of our hearts is a resounding yes. Let's bow our heads today. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for verse 9, and we thank you for all that you hid in there, all the treasure you tucked in there for us, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that we would understand uh, the system of this world and its power structure and who's at the root of it and what spirit is behind it. So, Father, as we have conflict with the kingdom of darkness, we know that we are children of the kingdom of light and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world that the world will harass us and afflict us and try to cancel on us, but they will never destroy us because we are safe in your hands. Father, I pray that even if it comes to the place where we have to start laying down our careers and our reputation and our property and our finances and even our lives for you, Lord God, that we would have a heart that burns within us that says, no matter what it costs me, I'll never let go of Jesus. Help us to love you that much.